After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head -head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Thanks for joining us. This is an episode from our back catalog, so the episode numbers and firm name may have changed. But this is quality information, so instead of scrapping them, we decided it was more important to make sure you still had access. Enjoy the episode, and listen to new episodes of David vs. Goliath at dolmanlaw.com. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Dolman Law Group Podcast. I'm here with employment lawyer Trescott Gear. Trescott, say hello to our audience. Matt, pleasure to be back. So today we're going to keep it kind of employer focused, mm -hmm. go over issues that are really uh, germane just to employers only. Let's do it. All right. So tell me about what are the overtime laws and unpaid wages? What do we need to know? Okay. So typically, if you're working more than 40 hours in a given week, and depending on the kind of occupation you have, you should be eligible for known as time and a half, which is your hourly rate multiplied by a half, add together. That should be what you make in overtime, anything over 40 per week. Okay. You work, so say you make 15 bucks an hour, you work 45 hours, that's five hours of overtime. You should be making 2250 per hour for any of those hours over 40 per week. Uh, now, the key with this is that not everyone is eligible for overtime. You and I, for instance, as licensed professionals, are eligible for overtime. You can work your associates at Dolman Law Group like mules. Mm -hmm. uh, I know. I'm, I'm good to know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And as long as you're paying them more than more than right now, twenty-three thousand bucks per year. Yep. So maybe you're yeah. right. Maybe maybe you're right around that that floor of the associates. A little bit above it. Or maybe a little bit above it. Uh, then you can work them almost as long as as long as you you want. Now there are new overtime laws coming into effect. Um, we're kind of trying to do some retroactive analyses of these. The overtime standard right now is going to possibly, if the DOL enacts it, bump it up to $47,700. If you are below that salary threshold and you fit into all the various exceptions and exemptions, then you qualify for overtime. Anything over 40 per week, you get your time and a half. Sounds good. Now, but the key with this is that, like I just mentioned with the professionals, not everyone is eligible. If you're, an, if you're an engineer, for instance, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, if you're in administrative work, for instance, these are all different exemptions that prevent you from getting that overtime. Okay. And so honestly, it's a case-by-case -case basis. You as an employer, say you, have, say you run a tech firm, for instance, you've got 15 employees all doing a variety of different tech-based jobs. Some of those people may qualify for overtime. Some may not. It's, it's honestly on a case-by-case -case basis based on upon the job done. That's what's known as like the duties test. Okay. The court, if say someone goes, who's working as a um, administrative assistant mm -hmm. at a tech firm, worked 55 hours that last week for about a year. She definitely wants her 15 hours per week for the rest of the last year to mm -hmm. be compensated by you. Yeah, it's 750 hours she's on. Exactly. Yeah. And whatever she's making per, per you know, time and a half. Well, the court is going to look at what was she being asked to do? Was she ever in control of a department of people? Was she ever being asked to do high-level work, the kind of highly skilled expertise work that someone like a CEO, a CFO, or someone in some sort of management would be asked to do? If she's not being asked to do this, that's clerical, then she may have a case for it. But honestly, it just each individual story 
is told. So what is the litmus test? So she may have a case. You said she doesn't necessarily have a case. She, What's the gray area? The, the gray area right now is called, it's called the administrative exemption. It's are you performing higher level work for your corporation to the extent that it is existing in the running of the corporation? As opposed to, say, filing papers, are you an accountant? Like An accountant is, may, not be, may not be eligible for overtime, but someone who is a file clerk could. So honestly, if, you know, if you think you have an unpaid overtime case, you've got to come to people like us to analyze what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, let us vet the case. Exactly. Sure. Because from an employer standpoint, there are two things I can tell employers all the time. If you want to be safe, make sure everyone's making at least $455 per week. $455 per week right now is the threshold. If you bump everyone up to $455 or more per week, you don't have any sort of problems. Okay. And the alternative... If you if you if you just don't want to spend four fifty five per week on employees, um, start making them either independent, independent contractors, or start making everyone everyone's duties need to be clearly delineated. So then that brings to the next question: What's the difference between a ten ninety nine and W two? As this is the newest thing that's been going on. Like yeah, I mean, I understand ten ninety nine is independent contractor, W two is a salaried employee. Mm-hmm. But where's the classifications really affect you in employment law? What mm-hmm. are the issues that, that are germane to each? So the germane issues these days are what's known as misclassification. That's where a person who's been listed as a 1099 employee was actually performing the duties of a W-2 employee. And the employer has been getting around having to having to pay certain payroll taxes and to worry about those withdrawals for FICA, Social Security, Medicare, all the stuff that, you know, the first time you get a paycheck, you go, who is this Mr. FICA? Why is he taking a chunk, <laughs> chunk of my paycheck yeah. every time? Um, employers are getting into, getting into danger these days. Because a 1099 employee is literally should be called an independent contractor. You don't have someone controlling your day-to-day work. You have the ability to come and go as you please. You're able to perform tasks individually, usually remotely. Because remember that five years ago, if you wanted to work from home, you'd be 1099 out. If you were if you were working from home, you're just a guy who's sure. behind a, at a computer, logging his hours, then getting paid. Then dealing with your CPA, having to pay the having to pay the payroll taxes on the back end. Mm-hmm. But now more and more employers are characterizing their employees as 1099 employees, but still having them be working at the place for 40 hours a week and still under the direction and control of the employer. That's where the misclassification comes into play. Okay. You've got to be careful if you're going to be having your employees as 1099 employees that they have a level of freedom and control that your regular W-2 employees, like your employees here at the Dolman Law Group, who are probably almost all W-2s. Yes, all. That means that you have the ability to exercise daily control over them, over their tasks, their activities. In exchange, they don't have to worry about their payroll taxes at the end of the year because you're taking it's being taken out of each paycheck. So the penalty for violating this is what? The penalty for violating it is the misclassified employee yeah. can, file the loss, can file a lawsuit in court to recoup the, pay, the payroll taxes he's having to do at the end of each year if he's a 1099 employee. So say- okay. Say you're making thirty-five thousand dollars as a ten ninety-nine employee. You're probably going to have to pay five to seven thousand dollars at the end of the year in payroll taxes. Yep. At the end of the year, compared to the person who was making forty-two thousand, but has them has those seven thousand dollars already taken out over the course of fifty-two weeks. So oh, yes, yeah. So there, so there is a danger, especially if you're doing this with multiple employees. If they all catch on that they're not qualifying for ten ninety-nine status. You have a major issue. It could all hit you at once, too. Exactly, because employees talk to each other. They, unfortunately, will band together not as a class action, but they'll start 
dumping different plaintiff law firms with cases. Correct. And what is the ramifications for the employer in terms of attorney fees? Could they be stuck on the hook for paying the other side's fees? Now, I'm actually not sure if there's an attorney's fees provision laid out okay. in, the, in, this type, in this type of action. Okay. But not only do you have issues from a lawsuit standpoint, you also have an IRS issue. Because if you've been misclassifying your employees- You're not paying proper tax. Not paying proper taxes, and Uncle Sam will always get his. Fair enough. Any other issues regarding 1099 versus- uh... That's, that's the most prevalent one. So if you're an employer who has six to eight to 10, 10 99 employees, go back through what they're doing and try and analyze whether or not they're actually truly 1099. We're about to save you thousands of dollars right now by just going through and reanalyzing whether or not they need to be turned into W-2 employees. Okay. So best business practices is someone like myself mm-hmm. ensuring that the duties are spelled out, yes. that I have full control over my employees, mm-hmm. that they're not just operating at their own discretion. That's, that, that word discretion is a, yeah. is, a really, is a really good way to describe it. Yes. If you're a 1099 employee, you should be able, if not to dictate the terms of your employment, to the very least have a modicum of control and discretion in how you go about achieving the task. Obviously, you're still an employee of the entity. Yes. But you've got some latitude that you don't already you have. You have the answer to them, but you're yes. given a lot of room and a lot of rope. The latitude. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. As an employer, what do I have to look for in terms of uh, discriminatory behavior? What, you know, how do I nip mm-hmm. it in the bud if I see it early? What do I look for? What are, I know it's kind of um, it's a very liberal movement right now, the yes. Me Too movement, and uh, a lot of very similar actions are, being, are taking place. Mm-hmm. What rises the level of discrimination? When is it in the gray area? When is it not discrimination? So, yes, obviously it's a very heightened environment that we're currently sure. we're currently in, uh, and I'm sure some employers can feel as though they're under incredible scrutiny in either the Me Too movement or any sort of racial discrimination of the kind, the first thing you want to be doing is by nipping in the pa- and nipping in the bud by simply going, knowing what your employees are doing day to day. If you're exercising the control, like the, the W-2 employees, you need to be monitoring your employees. I'm not talking about big brother security here, but you need to be monitoring their, their emails, their correspondence, especially in the new age of social media, the inter-office correspondence. Now, possibly a firm like this, you may have some sort of instant messenger function, function where different employees can talk to each other through instant messages. Sure. You'd be amazed at how so much harassment can just occur inter-office through these, this new digital media. So you need to have the ability to review your messages. And there's not, and there's, you may have concerns about invasion of privacy. That's what I'm going to ask. But there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in a workplace like this when it comes to instant messages okay. or, or even emails. If it's, on, if it's on correspondence, if it's on your servers, you have the same access to it that they do. Now, you can't bug, you can't go and bug the bathroom. You can't go, you can't go and, bu- and bug your office. Those are federal, those are federal violations. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to reviewing instant, you can review instant messages, you can review emails. Anything that's involving you, your employer's overall, you know, your logo or your your s your your entity's essence, mm-hmm. you need to be in control in control of that and nipping stuff in the bud before it becomes a problem. Now, things may become just a dispute between two employees. That's not in and of self discrimination. It's when you're noticing that either a single employee is being singled out. Or maybe not bully. Yeah, the word bully too is, is thrown away too much. I think maybe like a campaign of harassment. A campaign of harassment would be a better way of okay. of describing it. Um, this once again comes into the fact of where you have an, an HR function at your workplace. Do you have just a simple pamphlet or a ha- or employee handbook? I tell all my employer 
clients, you've got to have something in writing. You need we, to have some. We do of, here. We have something that delineates what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Mm -hmm. But when is it too detailed, and when are we missing certain elements that should be to cover our, our proverbial ass? I mean, let, you know, it's a CMA. Cover well, yes, 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 CYA, When are we not covering our ass? When we when are we missing things that it should be covered? What you're, are you seeing out there? Now you're you're missing things when you're not allowing some sort of internal grievance process to to come into effect. It's not required by law, but there are ways to. Cut the cut the problem off before it starts growing legs. Um, if you don't have some sort of informal mediation process between yeah. two disgruntled employees, or an ability for an employee to reasonably bring concerns—not the comment box, but reasonably bring concerns up the chain of command to a supervisor without fear of reprisal—yeah, you've got to have that. You've got to have something that that empowers your employees to not feel as though they're they have been. Threatened by the coworkers or the supervisor, and then ignored by management. If it's laid out in your handbook that all everything is confidential, mm -hmm. every complaint is confidential, okay. and if there's some sort of um, dispute resolution process internally, that will save you so much trouble down the line. This can be something as simple as putting the two people in the, in the same room with each other, having paying for an informal third party. This is the one time you may actually want to consider having a small outlay for a mediator of some kind when it involves a dispute between two higher employees. Okay. Let's be frank. If these are two $8 an hour employees who are calling each other names or bullying each other. Yeah, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. But exactly. Yeah. But these are, especially there's salaried employees at a higher threshold. You need to be nipping this stuff in the bud by removing the threat of a future lawsuit. You remove that by showing to a third party or to a future investigator that you've taken every ameliorative effort to resolve the internal dispute. And now when it comes to dis individual discriminations, um, you got to be compliant with ADA. Now, in, a, in a public, public buildings, you've got to have access. If your employees are sick, you can't fire them for being sick. But you can lay out appropriate absence procedures. You can lay out appropriate procedures for calls out. Calls out. What's the number one cause of terminations in America? It's a no call, no show. Makes someone sense. someone doesn't follow an appropriate internal procedure, stays in all day, mm -hmm. then comes to work the next day and realizes they're fired. Well, they may think that they've been fired because they were sick. If you've laid out in your internal procedures a simple no call, no show policy that is enacted across the entire workplace equally. You, they can't try and then claim that you've been, they've been singled out. Okay. The, these are all the, these are all some of the ways that you can just get them before this thing grows like a virus. When you, going back a minute, when you talked about going up the chain of command and having the ability to, uh, you know, reconcile some of these issues, what about if you have a very small business with only three or four employees, how does that transcend? And what if you are the sole arbitrator being the owner, but the issue might lie with you? You've you've just got to be you've got to be so careful, especially mm -hmm. since you as a as the small business owner yes. are almost the sole arbiter, as mm -hmm. you said, of disputes in the office. Any favoritism you may show, especially for instance, whether it's true or not, whether you're a white male and the person who is bringing the action is an is an African American female, for instance, you cannot show that you've put placed undue weight on the race being a factor or her gender being a factor in her treatment. One way or the other. One way or the other. You, 
it, it sounds crazy, but you have to remain completely neutral. Even if in a small business, you're going to have certain biases that are just inherent biases. Mm-hmm. You have to remain completely, which is why you bring in a third party. You either bring us in as your HR functionary, or you have to bring in a mediator or an arbitrator to resolve the internal dispute. Is that common at, at big businesses? It's common in big businesses. Now, with small, with people under 10 employees, yeah. oftentimes the issue that comes in is that you as a business owner have a legitimate right to run your business as efficiently and effectively as possible. And if this person is being an irritant and a bother to, to you, You've got to find a re- you've got to find a reason for them to either quit the behavior or leave your corporation without the optics of a discriminatory or a retaliatory event. So let's case scenario. Okay. Right? So I had a fact pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're the employer. I'm the employer. Okay. And somebody's bringing possibly a discriminatory case or starting to allege those facts. But it's a smaller business. We have 30 employees here. But let's say we're a smaller business and only have three or four employees. Okay. And I'm the sole arbiter of that issue. Mm-hmm. But I'm also the the person who created the issue. Or at least that's the allegation. How do I resolve the issue? So the first thing you want to do, and we're going to go back to episode seven for a second. How does mediation seem neutral if I'm the person hiring the mediator? Well, the well, a mediator is supposedly supposed to be a completely neutral Entity, even if you're paying them, oftentimes, in a let's go back into a way the way we do day to day from yeah. a legal standpoint, both sides contribute to the mediator's fees, sure. so that there's no impropriety. Now, when you're you suffer hiring the mediator, what you're going to want is to have the mediator create like a reason statement as to the outcome of of the incident. Okay. So so you're paying them not only to be there and be present and hopefully resolving any sort of internal dispute, you're also paying them for their own analysis of your danger zones of okay yeah you're basically paying for a risk assessment the mediator can act as your risk assessor in this uh because the first next step that the employee is going to do is file a charge with the proper agency eoc uh, eoc or fchr yeah so you can remove a lot of the a lot of your internal stresses as a small business owner by either having a, a reward system in place for your for your employees or Making them feel as though they're empowered to seek solutions other than litigation. Okay. Against you. Wrongful termination cases. Mm-hmm. What do we watch out for there? Well, I know you, we kind of skate around the issue. We well, yeah, touched all, a little bit. But. Yeah, I feel like wrongful termination, you're always sort of skating around it. And in Florida, most owners are going to know that we're in an at will state. You could be hired or fired for almost any reason, which a lot of owners are going to fall back on. Terminated because they didn't, they weren't learning quickly enough, especially as from an efficient business standpoint. You see this a lot in law firms. You just don't have time to train certain people. And if they're not going to be able to make up the ground in time, they got to go. Yeah. But if this person is a protected class or this person has been shown a pattern of behavior, wrongful termination in Florida doesn't really exist. It only exists if it was tied to a discriminatory act, uh, you know, event, aka your race, disability, age, gender, sexual orientation. A little fuzzy on whether that's actually become becoming a protected class these okay. days. If that was a basis for the termination or the retaliation, other than that, you are safe in Florida if you can show a legitimatory, non-discriminatory motive for your termination of them. For instance, we all know people who were fired. Just because it was a bad fit. Sure. Happens every day. But when but when it's a bad fit, 
you need to have documented the reason for the, for the bad fit for the inevitable possible lawsuit. The first thing an investigator is going to do when someone files what could be a frivolous EEOC charge, they're going to ask you what was the reason for termination. Same for unemployment. Okay, this happens a lot of times in unemployment cases. Sure. You know, if you don't want to pay pay for their unemployment for the next two or three months, you're going to challenge their unemployment finding. The good news in Florida is that if you're found to be the cause of your own termination, you're not eligible for unemployment. So when you're trying to fight unemployment, you're laying out why it was a bad fit and why there was no, why there was no sort of malfeasance on your part. Okay. You need to be very careful, of course, that any action you took would have been done to any employee that deviated from the standards of conduct. Like episode seven, we talked about how you can create your own standard of conduct and standard of performance. Anyone who drops below it, whether they are disabled, whether they are a war veteran, whether they're just, they're just a waspy white male, all fall into the same category and are held to the same standards. If you can legitimately show that, you're going to be insulated from almost, almost all liability under the sun. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. It's all about insulation. You said it well. Mm -hmm. Severance agreements. Mm -hmm. What do we need to know there? What's a proper severance agreement? What are the considerations? What goes into in putting together a severance agreement? So. Florida is one of several states, as you can tell, that are pretty employer friendly. Uh, a lot of the labor laws support the employers at the end of the day. Um, I advise my cl my clients, though, that severance agreements at the end of the day are going to be worth the couple thousand dollars that you put into them. A severance agreement from a general definition standpoint is an agreement between the terminated employee or the, the employees of resigning and the previous employer that in exchange for money they would not have already earned, they release the employer from liability and waive all claims they have to sue the employer for anything that happened during the course of the employment. Okay. So, aka, the person who's been discriminated against, let's say it's actually been a discriminatory event. Let's say that you as the employer of the five-person five company, you think, well, crap, we may have gone from teasing this person to maybe there was a little bit of harassing behavior. Maybe we're not totally... We're not totally going to be at fault, but there's enough wiggle room, enough gray area sure. in this. Some exposure. Let's offer them a severance agreement. Severance agreement says, hey, for a certain number of of years that they work for the company, so they worked there for five years, you offer typically one to two weeks severance for every year of employment. Okay. Unless they're a really high-level high employee, in which case it could be more money being offered. You want to offer just enough money to make them question whether they want to sign it or not. Now, unfortunately, it's not it's not really an economic threat. It's sort of an economic reality. Can you afford the extra two months that we're offering you in exchange for not sue not suing the corporation ever again? Or are you willing to take the chance of filing a lawsuit and getting nothing? So you have this agreement that says, Hey, John Smith, you worked at this firm for five years. We're offering you ten thousand dollars in severance. In exchange, We'll also uh, offer COBRA to you. And COBRA is the carryover. Sure, when you like health insurance. When you like health insurance. You allow them to let into COBRA. Um, you offer to write them a letter of rec. You offer that you won't contest their unemployment compensation. Mm -hmm. You're doing all this as an employer to protect yourself down the line. If you honestly feel, though, that you are completely secure and there's not even a chance or a whiff of discrimination, then... Uh, just pay them their final paycheck that, that they were already owed and have them be in their way. 
Severance agreements, I say, are used for two kinds of cases. Cases where there's enough of smoke where there could be fire down the road for discrimination, retaliation, or harassment, or for a high-level employee that's performed well for you, and you want to create a standard of conduct to entice future employ- employees down the line. Okay. AKA, use a sort of a carrot-and-stick approach um, to bring people in. If the if the word around, around town is, hey, Smith Incorporated, they'll offer severance to their employees. That's actually a perk that you can offer at the outset of employment. That, hey, we're not just going to terminate you and, and walk away. You could also be seen as a weak link, or you could be seen as the uh, somebody you could be taken advantage of by offering such. You could be, you could be seen as that. spurious allegation will, you know, the response will be that we'll come back with a severance. And that's, and that's why you need to, you, you don't give severance to everyone. You don't give severance to the person who stole from your company. Or you don't give severance to a person who screwed up and cost your firm tens of thousands of dollars. Sure. You're giving severance to the people that you can't, you don't want to be seeing them in two years in federal court. Or the people that were such a high value to you. That you want to create a positive working relationship with them in the future somehow, and you realize that opinions in the community can go a long way in the future. But from a severance standpoint, you're not required to in state of Florida. There is no requirement that sure. you give severance. And this, by the way, everything we've been talking about deals with private employee, private employees, and private employers. Yes. If you're a public employee in the state of Florida, you have your own internal grievance process. You have your own standards for severance. As we we always joke that you had to kill someone to ever get fired if you work for the government. That's only half. We're only half kidding. You have an incredible amount of job security when you're a public employee. Sure do. Um, so a lot of this has been talking about was private employers, and and for private employees. Just as a disclaimer, to this video. So in, in all severance agreements, are we looking at a contemporaneously receiving a release or confidentiality? Statement? Yes, you're looking for in exchange for me cutting you a check in ten days for the amount of money, you're signing a re- release. Releasing all liability, waiving all claims once it's assigned. So it's basically a con- it's basically a contract. A severance agreement is a contract. Sometimes confidentiality. Confidentiality is going to be in play. A non-disclosure is going to be in play. Yeah. We haven't even touched, and maybe we want to touch briefly on non on non-competes. Sure. Inside inside of this, oftentimes in a severance agreement, and this is a very this is not it's not devious, but a really clever outside counsel will incorporate a non-compete in this as well, especially if it's a highly specialized type of. Uh, industry sales, you see so many non-competes with sit in, in sales contracts or in sales severance agreements. Uh, non-compete basically says, "Hey, because of the amount of confidential information you've received in the course of your employment, and because of all the highly detailed proprietary information that you've received for the next two years, you can't work for so and so in this geographic range." Up to two years. Anything over two years is going to be invalid in Florida. Anything more than 150 miles is going to be seen as probably being invalid unless you're a national corporation. Okay. Now, judges may overturn the non-compete years from now, but what you're buying, you're buying peace of mind. You're buying that, hey, I'm giving them cash and they're getting a nice exit out the door, but I'm getting something back for this. I'm getting the protection of knowing they can't turn around and go to my competitor Utilize my trade secrets, my proprietary info, and screw me over on the back end. I suggest non-competes for any employee in some sort of sales capacity or any employee in any sort of capacity where they have access to such confidential information and proprietary information that makes it damaging to your brand. You got to prove it's proprietary. 
You've you got to pr- show it affects the uh, goodwill of the business. Yes, you have to show that it is so tangible to the, how the running of your business and it's so specialized to your business. Mm-hmm. Can't just be that, hey, you work for a hospital, therefore you can't work for a hospital anymore. Sure. Also, there's public policy standards too. If, if someone is like a, a paramedic, you can't prevent them from never working for another hospital or a paramedic corporation. Sorry. So there's still certain public policy restrictions on this. But non-competes, restrictive covenants and the, and the like yeah. are, are should be used sparingly, but when they are used, are incredibly effective. When they're not ambiguous. When they're not ambiguous. And the key with this, I tell people on both sides of the, of the aisle, the non-compete is only as valid as the person trying to enforce it is. So the person never tries to enforce a non-compete and you violate it, there's really no harm, no foul. It's when you violate it and the per- and their previous employer learns about it, then they can go and litigate you for breach of contract because it's technically a contractual term. Sure. And so they can litigate your breach of contract. And also in your severance agreement, you want attorney's fees to be a provision in any severance agreement you have. You want any dispute about the agreement a year from now, two years from now, however long it's in validity, to have a prevailing party fee statute in there or fee provision in there. Okay. You want that. Any other issues you want to discuss today? I think we put the employers on a, on a pretty good footing right now. Yeah, I think we were pretty thorough today. I really mm-hmm. appreciate you coming on, Trescott Gear. This concludes episode number eight of the Dolman Law Group podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of David versus Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N law.com. Or call 866-965-6242. The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.